Well, it is an honor to be with you today. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of First Peter, chapter 1. My name is Matt Carter, um, one of the pastors here at the Stone. We're going to be in First Peter, chapter 1, verse 6 today. If you're new to our church, one of the things that we do as a church, and we've done from the very beginning, the first Sunday of this church back in 2002, is we preach verse by verse through the Bible. And we are in the book of First Peter. And the book of First Peter was a letter written by one of the disciples of Christ, Peter, to the persecuted church. And the Christianity had begun to be persecuted, and he's writing these people to comfort them in the midst of, of their trials that they're going through. Now, I want to say something. I want to just jump right in today. And, um, and I want to say something. I want you to hear this very carefully. Because we come to a verse today that if heaven is not real, if, if God does not really exist, and if Christ never really rose from the grave and all this that we're doing here is just a myth, then what Peter says today, what we're gonna read today that Peter wrote might literally be the most ridiculous thing you're ever gonna hear in your entire life, okay? But if heaven is real, if heaven is real, if Jesus really did rise from the grave, and if all this that we're talking about is actually true, then what Peter is going to say today is by far and away the best news you are ever going to hear. All right, so here, I want to read it to you. First Peter chapter 1, verse 6. I want you to hear um, the, 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 the unbelievable statement that he's about to make. <clears throat> he says this. He says, in this you greatly rejoice. There's something that we need to be greatly rejoicing in. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All right? Now, I want to go back to verse 6 again. I want to read it one more time. Peter says, in this, you greatly rejoice. Though, even though for now, a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Now, once you, for just a second, we're gonna leave that verse up, and I want you to look at that verse just through the world's perspective for a second. Look at that verse just from somebody that doesn't know the Bible, that, that is not a Christian, a non-believer. Look at it from their perspective for just a second. Because what Peter just told you and me as Christians, this is what we're supposed to do. That when we're distressed by various trials, that word also means grieved. When you and I are grieved by the various trials that we go through in life, then what we are to do when those trials come in our lives and we're grieved by them, Peter says we are to greatly rejoice. Now again, if you take that out of the context of what he's about to say, and, and again, if Jesus Christ never rose from the grave, that is one of the most ridiculous things you will ever hear, is like the ravings of a lunatic. He says, hey, I want you to greatly rejoice when you're grieved by trials. What in the world does that mean, and why did he say that? And what's interesting is when you start digging out into the original language that Peter wrote this in, which was Greek, um, the descriptive language that he uses is far more than the English language is even able to convey. Look at the phrase, greatly rejoice. That's actually one word in the Greek language. When he's writing, it's just one phrase. It's agalaleo. And it's, it's, a, it's a phrase that doesn't really mean greatly rejoice. It's actually a phrase that more literally translated means to jump for joy. To jump 
for joy. Peter writes to these people that are going through all these crazy trials in their lives, they've been grieved by trials, and he says, hey, I want you to jump for joy when you're going through these various trials. And I want you to stop for a second and, and think about just kind of how strong of a statement that that is. Because church, there's a, there's a very big difference between you being excited about something and actually getting to the place where you're jumping for joy about something. Um, there, there are very few circumstances and situations in your life where you will become so joyful that you'll actually start jumping up and down. And I started thinking about it. I'm like, what are, what are the scenarios, what are situations in our life where we would actually want to start jumping, not just because of the beat of a drum or something, but because of joy? And I thought about the World Series this year. The Cubs won the World Series this year. And for those of you that are not baseball fans, um, they won after, uh, they haven't won the World Series since 1908. And for you non-math majors in the room, that is a 108-year non-championship drought. I was watching the seventh game of the World Series this year when they won, and before the game started, they panned in, the cameras panned into this old lady. And when I say old, this lady was ancient. She was probably in her 90s. I mean, she was just kind of sweet old lady. She wore this T-shirt that said, please win one before I die. And I mean, she had to be in her 90s, and she spent her whole life watching the Cubs, not seeing the Cubs win a championship. Please win one before I die. Well, I want to show you um, just a little, about 40-second clip of the, uh, the Cubs, what happened when they actually won this world championship in baseball after 108 year droughts. So let me show you this video real quick. Here's the 0-1. This is, this is the last out. Pitch clean, goes to first. He's out, they win. World champions and the jumping starts now. There you go. Grown men jumping. Guy on top of the pile. Holding your head, hand in the air, hugging, crying, and jumping. There you go. Now, here's the thing. You, you can cry with joy. You're going to have a baby one day, or maybe you've had children before, and, and most of us, you just start crying, and you've got no other explanation for it other than you're just crying with joy. You can, you can shout for joy. There are a lot of times when something cool happens and your response is that you, you shout out with joy. You can throw your hands up in the air with joy. There's a lot of circumstances in your life. Man, you throw your hands up in the air. But, but there are only a few times in your life where something were so, would be so marvelous, so just unbelievable that your response is that joy wells up so much inside of you that you actually begin to jump. And that is the phrase that Peter uses to these people that are going through persecution. He, he, he's saying, in look at verse six, he says, in this, you greatly rejoice. In this, you jump for joy, even now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed or grieved by various trials. Now, either one, Peter is absolutely nuts or he's onto something here. He's absolutely lost his mind or he's on to, there's something that he knows about life and about the Lord. That is a bold statement. Why in the world would he say for, to this persecuted church, you should jump for joy like you just won a world championship after a hundred year drought, like you just won the lottery when you are grieved with various trials? Well, he tells us in the very next verse. Let's read six one more time and then we'll jump into seven because he gives the answer in verse seven. 
verse six, he says, in this you greatly rejoice, you jump for joy, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Look at verse seven, here's why. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, here's what Peter just said. That you and I as believers, that we are to be overwhelmed with joy to the point where we are jumping when we are grieved by various trials. Why? Because trials, listen, don't miss this. Because trials, what he's saying, better than anything else are necessary to reveal whether or not your faith in Jesus Christ is genuine or whether it is counterfeit. That's what he's saying. He's saying that, that we jump for joy when we encounter a, a difficult trial because what that trial is going to do is it's gonna show you once and for all whether you had a real, genuine faith in Jesus or whether you did not have a real, genuine faith in Jesus. That's why we jump for joy. And I'll talk about this. There's a couple of implications of what he's saying here, church. And here's the first implication is that it, enti- it is entirely possible, and I'll show you biblically here what I mean here in a second, but it's entirely possible for you and me to have a kind of belief in God that does not lead to the salvation of our souls. It's actually pretty common in the Bible where you see people that kind of have this sort of belief in God, but it's not a saving faith or a saving belief in God. Now, what is a saving faith? What is a, what is a, a, a real saving belief in God? We know that the gospel is this, is that you and I are sinners, you know that? We've all fallen short of the glory of God, we've all missed the mark, and so because we're sinners and we've fallen short of the glory of God, we earned death, is what the scripture says, eternal death. But Jesus came to this earth, he lived a perfect life. He never sinned, he never fell short of the mark, and he died on a cross. And when he died on a cross, he shed his blood, he paid the penalty for our sin. And so that through his blood, we can trust into what he did on the cross and our sins are completely forgiven and we're reconciled back to God and we go to heaven when when we die. And when we put our faith and we put our trust into that, the Lord gives us Holy Spirit, he seals us and we will endure to the end no matter what. That's a real saving faith. But what we're about to see here excuse me, the scripture's gonna show us is that there's a kind of belief that you can have that's sort of this kind of belief in God that won't endure through trials, it won't endure through suffering, it won't last, and it'll show you never had a real faith even from the beginning. And so let me read this to you. Don't turn there, you can. Matthew chapter 13, verse 20. We're gonna come back to Peter in just a second, but this is Jesus speaking, and he's talking about a couple of different responses to the word of God, that when the word of God is preached, there's a couple of different responses to it, And in in, uh, Matthew chapter 13, verse 20, he talks about the first one. He says, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who, (coughs) excuse me, hears the word of, uh, of the Lord and immediately receives it with joy. And so if you just kind of stop right there, you're like, okay, this is good. The person heard the Bible, they heard preaching, they heard the word of God, and they actually received it with joy. And but he goes on and he says, yet he had no root in himself, but endures for a while, but when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. 
This is the person that had some sort of belief in God because they heard preaching, they heard the Bible, and they kind of received it in some shape, form, or fashion, but when things got really, really hard, they walked away from it. Jesus goes on in verse 22. He says, as for it was sown among thorns, this is one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Same kind of thing. This is a person that had some sort of receiving of the word of God, some sort of belief in the word of God, but the cares of the world came in. Marriage, children, money, job, finances, pleasure, stuff, cares of the world came in. The deceitfulness of riches comes into their life and it chokes out that work or word from doing anything good and changing them in their heart. And then they fall away. Now I wanna be real, real, real clear. I want you to hear this clearly here. Jesus is not saying that you can actually have a saving faith that leads to the salvation of your soul and then lose it. You can't do that. Once you are truly and genuinely saved and you have genuinely and truly put your faith in Jesus, you will endure to the end no matter what. So that's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is that it's entirely possible for you to have some kind of belief in God that didn't actually lead to your salvation. And so that's kind of the first implication of this verse is that there is, there is a non-genuine kind of faith out there. And then there is a genuine faith, okay? And the second implication of this verse is this, is that one of the ways, one of the primary ways, I think we could argue biblically, that God will use to reveal whether or not your faith in Christ is genuine or not, are trials. It's one of the ways that, one of the things God will allow to come into your life and it will reveal to you and everybody else the genuineness of your faith. In Matthew chapter seven, verse 24, this is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Watch what Jesus says. He says, everyone, who, uh, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. That the rock is Jesus. Watch this, he says, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and they beat on the house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone, 26, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against the house, and it fell. And the great and great was the fall of it. Okay, guys, you see that? Jesus said there's two kind of people. There's a kind of people that have built, or rather have the foundation of their faith built on the rock of Jesus Christ. That's a real genuine faith. And then there's people that have built their faith on some sort of shifting sand. Those are the two kinds of people. And Jesus says, not me, Jesus says that the determining factor that will reveal in your life whether you have a foundation built on the rock of Jesus that will last or whether you have a faith that is built on shifting sand that when the storms come will not last, he said the revealing determining factor that will reveal the two are storms. Storms. He's saying that storms will come into your life. And for some people, when the storm comes into your life, the winds are gonna blow and the floods are gonna rise and they're gonna beat against you and your faith will still be standing there when the storm passes. And then there's other people that the storm is gonna come into your life and the wind's gonna blow and the flood's gonna rise and it's gonna beat against you and that storm will tear your faith apart. That's what... Peter is saying is that storms, trials, fire, better than anything else, reveal and test the genuineness of your faith. And guys, I want you to know that as a pastor, as a, 
pastor of a church that's, I've been in ministry for 20 something years. This, this statement that Jesus just made is one of the reasons that I believe the Bible's true. Because I cannot tell you how many times the Bible will say something and then, and then I will see it be true in life. And this is one of those things that Jesus said, hey look, storms are gonna come into people's life and it's gonna reveal whether their faith was real or not. I've seen it happen over and over and over again. I cannot tell you how many times over the last 15 years I've pastored this church, I have seen, and I'll just, I've seen this both with men and women, but I'll see women that have gone to church their whole lives. They'll be in their 30s. And everything, from every outward appearance, you could look at this person's life and you could say this is a follower of Christ until a storm comes, until a really, really difficult trial comes. Like I've, I've seen this a ton. So the, the husband will cheat on him. And then, and then you watch, I've watched helplessly as their faith in God just disintegrates right before my eyes. And you try and you try and you try, but they won't turn back to the Lord. They won't come back to the church. And a year later, they aren't going to church. They don't even know if they believe in God anymore. And you find out they're walking in some relationship that they're neck deep in sexual immorality. And, and, and you see everything in their life seemed to be great in their walk with Jesus until the storm came. And then this huge storm blew into their life. And, and then all of a sudden it gets revealed that their faith was built on a foundation of sand. I've seen it with uh, singles. <clears throat> I see this about twice a year here at the Stone, and it always breaks my heart. You see these single guys, these single girls, they're following God, they're serving God, and, and everything looks great up to a point in their singleness, and the storm of loneliness or the storm of sexual purity gets just too much for them, and then you, you, you ask about them because they're not going to church anymore, and you find out, oh, they, they got in a relationship with a non-believer, and, and they're walking in sexual immorality, and they don't even know if they believe in God anymore. I see it over and over and over again, and you go two years before, and you could have looked at that person's life, and everything was fine until the storm came, and the storm revealed that their faith was built on a foundation of sand. I see it happen a ton with college students that they'll come into the Austin Stone and they come to the Austin Stone because their parents told them that that's where they needed to go to college when they go to the University of Texas or St. Edwards or whatever and they've gone to church their whole life but then they go to college and then the, the temptations of college life, the storm of college life hits them and then six months later you look at them and there seems to be no remnant of this kind of faith that they had as a child and this is what Jesus is talking about. That when storms, comes into, storms come into people's life, it will absolutely reveal the kind of foundation your faith is built on. And I've seen it be true, the opposite of that be true also so many times. I've seen so many people, church, over the years that they're going through the same trials. <laughs> they go through a difficult marriage. They go through the trial of singleness. They go through the trial of the temptations of college. They go through the trial of cancer, they go through the trial of losing a job, and they walk through that trial, and it has the exact opposite effect of the people that I talked about before. That when they walk through the trial, they come out on the other side of the trial, and their faith is more firm, and it's more solid, and it's more real than it ever had been before. And that's what Tim Keller's talking about. I wanna read a quote from Tim Keller, the pastor in New York City. He says this, he says, Christianity teaches that contrary to Buddhism, suffering is real. Christianity teaches suffering is real. Contrary to karma, 
Suffering is often unfair. Karma will teach you if you're suffering, it's because you earned it. Christianity teaches sometimes, you look at Job, sometimes you're suffering, it's not fair. He goes on and says, contrary to secularism, suffering is meaningful. The world will tell you there is no point whatsoever in suffering, and what the scripture tells us is there is always a purpose to suffering. He goes on, he goes, there is a purpose to it, and if faced rightly, it can drive us, listen, if faced rightly, It can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can ever imagine. That statement's true. Suffering for the believer, it it, it always, I've been through it, it always stinks, it always hurts, it it, it always is painful, it's never fun, but the thing that you and I get to hold on that Peter's screaming from the rooftops about is that for us who are believers, suffering always has a purpose. For the child of God, suffering drives you like a nail into the love and the heart of God. That's what suffering does. I, um, years ago, um, I got a phone call from a friend of mine named Matt Chandler. He's a pastor in Dallas. <coughs> Huge church. Some of you guys probably listen to his podcast. And it was Thanksgiving Day, and they had just had Thanksgiving dinner, and he was walking to his living room, passed out, um, laid down, had a seizure on the ground. They go do an MRI, and they found out that he had a tumor, and it was just woven all throughout his brain. It was the kind of cancer that um, very few people survive over five years and they had to do surgery. They made a decision that they had to do surgery and they were gonna remove a fourth of his brain. And um, by the way, he's, that was like 10 years ago, he's, he's still alive and so praise God for that. But at the time, it was not looking good. And so he knew that doctors told him, they said, look, we're gonna take a fourth of your brain out and we don't know if you'll survive the surgery. And even if you do survive the surgery, we, we don't know how long you'll live after that. And so he sits down, he writes a letter to his wife. He, he writes a letter to all of his children. And then in a couple days, he's, he's about to go into the surgery. And a friend of mine and I drove down to Dallas and we, we prayed for him. And we were in his living room. And I had my hand on his head when we were praying for him. And, and Matt's on his knees and he's holding on to his Bible with his hand. <clears throat> and after I got finished praying, I said amen he lifts up the Bible. His tears are streaming down his face. I got scared to death. You know, it's already written his final letter to his children and his wife. He's holding his Bible. He looks up at me, tears streaming down his face. He said, and this is this interesting what came out of his mouth. He goes, Matt, I want you to know. He's looking at his Bible. He says, I believe this with all my heart. And that's an interesting thing. It's an interesting response right there. That you're literally facing death. You are going through the storm of your life and your response is, I believe this book. I believe the word of God now more than I've ever believed it in my life. And what Peter is saying to us today is that it's those moments right there. It's that moment right there where the world sends you its worst. Where the storm comes at you like a hurricane. 
And the world in this, this fallen world throws at you everything it's got and you stand there at the other end of that holding up your Bible and say, God, I still believe in this with all of my heart. Peter says that moment right there is showing and proving that you have a genuine faith in God. The storm comes and it does not tear down your house. Now, watch what Peter says next. Watch what he says next because we're gonna see why this is so critical. Look at verse seven. He says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, jump for joy when you're encountering all these different trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, watch what it says, is more precious than gold. It's more precious than gold. Peter writes this church and he says, your faith that has been tested by fire and storms and trials and it's found at the other end of the storm and the trial to be genuine, that right there is more valuable, it's more precious than gold. And I want you to hear something, church. Peter's just not waxing poetic here. He's not just trying to think of some cool poetic thing to say. He's actually making a point here about the value of genuine faith. Think about it. He's saying that throughout all of history, <clears throat> there has been one thing that has been viewed as an object of greatest value, and that's gold. Throughout all of human history, there's been one thing that's been viewed to have the highest value. All the kings, all the kingdoms of the world, gold has been the greatest thing of human value. And he writes this church, and he's like, hey guys, going through persecution, the reason that you can jump for joy when you're encountering all these trials is because this is what that trial is doing. That trial is revealing whether or not you have a genuine faith in Jesus Christ. And if you are to be found to have a genuine faith in Jesus Christ, that genuine faith is more valuable, it is more precious than gold. Now why in the world would Peter say that a genuine faith a real faith that's still standing on the other side of a trial is the single most valuable thing you could ever possess. Why is he saying that? Well, let's read it again. First Peter 1, 6. In this, you jump for joy, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith is more precious than gold though it be tested by fire, watch what he says. Here's why genuine faith is more precious than gold. It's the most valuable thing you could ever have, he tells us. Because genuine faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He tells us the reason why genuine faith that's still standing on the other side of the trial is more valuable than gold is because there is coming a day called the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I wanna tell you why genuine faith is really, really important on this thing called the revelation, the day of the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know what the day of the revelation of Jesus Christ is, church? That's the day he's coming back. That's the day he's coming back. And when he comes back, he's coming back in power. And I wanna read to you just a couple of verses that shed light on why when Jesus comes back in power, it's really, really important, important safety tip that you are standing there on that day with genuine faith. Let me read you a couple verses here. Revelation chapter 9, 1916. That's why it's called Revelation because we're talking about the revelation of Jesus. This is John speaking and he says, then I saw heaven open up and behold a white horse. 
And the one sitting on it was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the day of the revelation of Christ. Jesus is gonna come riding in on a white horse. In verse 12, he says, his eyes were like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. I don't know what that means, but he's got a lot of diamonds on his head. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. So Jesus gives himself a cool name. And he's clothed in a robe dripped in blood. That's intense. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on that white horse. And then from his mouth comes a sharp sword, which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Let me just read that again. And from his mouth, dude's gonna come in on a white horse. He's gonna have a sword coming out of his mouth. That's intense. And he's gonna strike down the nations with his mouth and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The dude's gonna have a tattoo that says King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And I'm gonna tell you, church, that on that day, the day of the revelation of the Lord, there is not gonna be a shadow of a doubt on anybody's mind that he is exactly who he says he was. All the debate is gonna be over. And every knee is gonna bow and every tongue is gonna confess. Everybody that's ever lived, everybody that is alive, in that moment when he comes cruising through the clouds with the army of the Lord behind him, Everybody's gonna be like, oh, he's Lord. He's Lord. And if you just skip over to the next chapter in Revelation 20, John tells us what happens to those who did not have a real genuine faith in Jesus. And it's not good. But I want you to watch what happens to those of us who by the grace of God, our faith remained after the storm. Look at verse seven again. He says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith is more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. Here's what happens. May be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If at the revelation of Jesus Christ you are found in that moment, in that day to have had a real, lasting, genuine faith that survived the storms. The first thing Peter says is on that day, you will receive praise. You'll receive praise. Now that's a word, it does not mean worship. It means adulation. It means applause. It means that the day of the revelation of the Lord when Jesus Christ comes back, what he's trying to say is that you're not going to spend, you're not just going to spend eternity talking about how amazing and great Jesus is, but that you're also going to spend eternity having God speak value and love into you. That on the day of the revelation of the Lord, you will receive praise, adulation, applause. I think what that means, I don't know exactly what he's gonna say, but I think it's gonna be something like, he's gonna look at you on that day and he's gonna say, you made it. You made it. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You remember all those trials you went through? I was with you the whole time. 
I never let go of you. And all I was doing through all of those trials was getting you ready for this moment. Well done. Enter your rest, my good and faithful servant. He says, on that day in the day of revelation, genuine faith tested by fire will result in praise. He goes on and he says this. He said, also on that day of the revelation of the Lord, you will receive glory. And I'll be honest with you, I really don't know what that means. But here's what I think it means, because I went back this last week and I, and I read every verse in the book of Revelation that used the word glory. The same Greek word is what we're gonna receive, Peter says, on that day. <clears throat> it almost always refers to light, to light. In Revelation 18, one, it says this. John says, after I saw this, another angel came down from heaven having great authority and the earth was made bright with his glory. Probably talking about Gabriel or, or Michael and Michael shows up and he's shining earth, fills the earth with his light. Revelation 21, 23, and this is talking about heaven, the new Jerusalem after Jesus comes back of the day of revelation. It says in the city, this is talking about the new Jerusalem, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. There's no moon or sun in heaven, why not? He says, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp, its lamp is the lamb. And so God and Jesus are shining so bright in heaven that we're not gonna even need the sun anymore. And then in verse 24, he says, by its light, by the, the light of the lamb, the nations will walk. That's us. We're gonna be walking around heaven by the light of Jesus. And all the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never shut by day. And there will be no night there. In verse 26, he says, they will bring into it the glory in honor of the nations. It always means light in Revelation. And so here's what I think it means. I think it means that if on the day of the revelation of the Lord you're found with a genuine faith that not only are you gonna receive adulation but you're gonna receive glory, I think that probably means you're gonna get your new glorified body, which is really cool. And for those of you that are like 20 years old, you have no idea how unbelievably cool that is and that's why the old guys just went amen because you don't know but you're gonna get your glorified body and what do we know about the glorified bodies? We know we're gonna shine because Jesus and his glorified body on the Mount of Transfiguration, that he's hanging out with Moses and Elijah and the disciples saw him and he is shining. And so what I think that means, you're gonna get your glorified body and you are going to shine with the glory of God. And I don't know what all that means, but it sounds cool to me, sign me up. And he goes on, we're almost done here, hang with me. So we're gonna receive praise and we're gonna receive glory. And the last thing Peter says, watch this. He says, so, verse seven, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. You're gonna get honor. He's gonna give you honor. That's not verbal affirmation. That's actually a word that means, it's like a monetary term. It's a word that means valuables. So what does that mean? That I'm gonna be standing there and, and I'm, gonna, I'm gonna be getting praise and I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna be glorified, which is gonna be cool, and then I'll receive honor. What does valuables mean? I think what he's talking about is First Peter chapter five, verse four. Don't turn there, just watch. Peter kind of gives us a glimpse of what that, what that honor's gonna be. In, in chapter five, verse four, it says, and when the chief shepherd appears, Peter says, when Jesus shows back up, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That 
on that day. You're standing there with a faith that didn't get taken out by trials. He's going to praise you. He's going to give you glory. He's going to take a crown. He's going to put it on your head. And John tells us later on in Revelation that there's something that we do after he puts the crown on our head. Is you're going to take it right back off. And you're going to lay it at his feet. And you're going to give him praise and glory and honor. Peter says, look, why don't you go ahead and start jumping for joy? Because whatever you're doing, it's just getting you ready for that. It's getting you ready for that. And you'll look back several trillion years from now, and you'll look back at that little insignificant trial and you'll be so thankful that it prepared your heart for that day. Let me read this to you one last time. We're done. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, it's more precious than gold. Um, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. The world out there tells us that we are to sit in the joy of comfort because trials are coming. But the Lord tells us, sit in the joy of suffering because praise and glory and honor are coming. And if Jesus didn't rise from the grave... That's the dumbest thing you'll ever hear in your life. But I'm telling you, Jesus rose from the grave. And so it's time to celebrate. Let's pray. I want you to take a second and I want to just speak with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. I want to speak for just a second to anybody in this room that feels like they're holding on to their faith by a thread. What I want you to do is I want you to be honest with the Lord and I want you to be honest with somebody else and say this trial is wearing me out and I am hanging on by a thread. That is the grace of God that you're even aware of that. That is God holding on to you. That is God telling you right now that the fact that you're even aware of that means he's not letting you go. So be honest with the Lord. Tell somebody else, I need help because I feel like I'm just barely hanging on through this trial. For those of you that have been through the storms and your faith is still standing, your faith is stronger, today would be a great day to tell the Lord, thank you that you held on to me, that you didn't let me go that you gave me the grace not to let you go and just praise him for that. And for those of you that are in the midst of the trial and you're standing, but it stinks, just fix your gaze today and your thoughts and your heart on the day that is coming soon. It's called the revelation of Jesus. For on that day, you will receive praise and you will receive glory and you will receive honor and it'll all be worth it.
Jesus, it's such a comfort to know that of all the stuff that I've been through, I never went through it alone. And, and I thank you that by your grace, you are just driving me deeper into your heart. Lord, I want to lift up anybody in this room that's just hanging by a thread. Lord, I pray that you would show up to them in a very real and tangible way today and they would feel your love and you would just whisper exactly what they need in, in their hearts right now. Father, I, I speak on behalf of all of us that we're looking forward to the day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. And so, Lord, we're just going to go ahead and get that started right now. And we're going to sing to you and proclaim to you, you're God, you are Lord. And we love you, Jesus. It's your name we pray and sing. Amen. Let's stand together.